If you have your Bibles today, you can open up with me the book of Luke chapter 13 as we continue through this study together. Today we come to a passage of scripture in which Jesus has asked a very important question that's pertinent both for his generation and the folks who were there as well as our generation. How many people are going to go to heaven? And we all want to think that we are one of the number, regardless of how big or small that it is. There was a uh, survey that was done some time ago by Gallup in which 78% of Americans expect to go to heaven. Uh, now, that number may be higher or lower today than it was when the poll was taken. But most people want to go to heaven, and most people expect to go to heaven. Now, when this poll was taken, it's interesting to note that 78% of people expect to go to heaven, but out of that 78%, very few actually go to church. Very few of those people actually read their Bible regularly, pray regularly, have anything to do with God. There's no real relationship with God, yet they expect that when they die, that God will take them to himself in heaven in a place that he's prepared for them. So I don't really want, this is what most people are saying, we don't really want a relationship with you, God. We just want all the benefits of a relationship with you without really knowing you, without really needing to deal with you, without really needing to change our lives. We, we just want to know about you, know of you, and someday be in the place that you and only you that could, could prepare for us. That's where most people are today. And that's where people have always been, isn't it? Hasn't it been? It's, it's, it's just people really want to have it their own way. They want to meet God on their own terms. They want all the benefits that God might give them, but they want the relationship on their own terms. There's been this question asked throughout history, how many people really are going to get there and how do you get there? And most folks are trying to answer that question in their own terms. This fellow was asking a question of Jesus in this passage he said, uh, will only a few people be saved? There was a greater debate going on in that culture at this time. The Jews were debating. Some on one side said everyone's going to make it to heaven. They were universalists. Said everyone's going to end up making it there. Don't worry about it. And there were the folks on the other side that said there are only a few folks going to make it. And so Jesus was being asked this question in light of the debate of his day. Uh, who's right on this subject? The group that says everyone's going to make it, the group that says only a few will make it. And you'll see here that Jesus never really directly answers his question. What he does is he responds by indicating how you can be sure or what you need to do in the sense of what you personally need to do in order to make sure you're a part of that number, whether it's great or small. You see, Jesus, as we see here, always had his mind and his attention towards Jerusalem. Everything was about redemption. Everything was about restoring a right relationship between ourselves and Him. God had chosen us for salvation. And God had chosen to save us through the sacrifice of His Son on that cross. And that cross was in His, 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 the forefront of His thinking at all times. And what Jesus is clearly indicating here is that it should be in the forefront of our thoughts and our lives at all times as well. See, one of the most tragic things is to live life for things that don't matter and live life in such a way that you miss the things 
that are of utmost importance. And what is more important than your relationship with God? So does everyone make it or does just a very few people make it? Jesus was resolute. He had his mind on that which was going to make an opportunity for anyone to make it who would place faith in him. And his answer to the question is, is that you and I should work hard to make sure that our lives are about that which will make sure that will will absolutely, without question, make it possible and make a reality that we ourselves are found there someday too. Jesus says, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to enter but fail. Now we know that he is not saying that we should work hard for our salvation, right? Because you cannot take one verse and build an entire theological treatise. Some folks try to do that. You have to take this in light of the entirety of the gospel as well as the entirety of the New Testament and the Bible as a whole. And we know from Scripture that it is by grace that we are saved through our faith in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross, not of works, lest anyone should boast that they save themselves. We know that we are not saved by our works. So what in the world is Jesus saying here? Well, he is, in this passage of Scripture, making a commentary of verses 1 through 5. He is commenting on that which has already been said, especially with specific intent upon verse 5, in which Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. You see, coming into a relationship with God is a very easy thing, but it is also a very hard thing. Jesus says you need to work hard. That is, you need to make sure that you are doing the business of what is necessary in order to come into a relationship with God. On the one hand, it's very easy. All it amounts to is that you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You entrust your life to him, receive his forgiveness, give your life to him, and you're saved from your sin, from the consequences of your sin. But on the other hand, it's a very difficult thing because it also requires that we die to everything that we are in order to become something new. It means dying to sin, dying to self, and dying to all other efforts in which we try to meet God and save ourselves. That's a very difficult thing for man to do. You say, well, this seems very basic. Yeah, I understand that. I believe that. But do you really believe that? Now, I want to challenge you today with some stuff here, and I really want you to think with me today, okay? So if you checked your mind at the door, pick it back up right now, all right? And put it back between the ears, okay? Because you're going to have some thinking to do today. I, I want to challenge you with this. You see, man is created with a sin nature. I mean, originally we weren't created with that, don't get me wrong. But as we're in our mother's womb, we have a sin nature. When you yourself were created in your mother's womb, your sin nature was there because we're fallen. Sin is passed down through the father into the womb and we are there in the womb. From the time we are conceived, we are conceived, and Psalm 51 says, in sin. Not that we are conceived during an act of sin. We are conceived in sin in the fact that we take into ourselves from the moment of conception the sin of our Father. We're fallen from the moment of conception. Isn't that that just a terrible thing? Isn't that depressing? That you are conceived sinful. That's a depressing thought. We think these babies are born and they're all so sweet and innocent and they're covered by God's grace. But 
they're sinners. That sweet little baby in your arms is a sinner and was conceived a sinner. That's depressing. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? We don't like to talk about little babies that way, do we? But it's the truth. It's what Scripture says. We're all conceived in sin. Now, I want you to think with me on this. We grow up as sinners. And from the time we're about two years old, it becomes very easy to see that sin nature, right? I mean, we're headstrong, we're rebellious, we want things our own way. We become difficult at times. Not my sweet children, but yours do, right? (laughs) Talking about the rest of you here right now. We can see that sin nature. And we grow up. And we're full of ourselves. And we're full of pride. And and we, we are independent creatures. Independent in the sense that we see ourselves independent of God. We're self-made people. And we're raised with this idea that if you want something done right, you do it how? You do it yourself. You need to look out for who? Number one. And so we are trained and ingrained with this idea that we are to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we're to do for ourselves and that we're capable of doing for ourselves. And that gets translated into our spirituality. That gets translated into our ideas about God and our relationship to him. So there comes a point in time where we say, I believe I need Jesus to forgive me of my sins. And we believe that we know that's true, that we need his salvation because apart from his salvation, we can't do quite enough in our mind to be saved. So we say, I need you. But oftentimes from that point forward, we are still trying to add to what he's already done for us. And that's where you get things like the Catholic church. And the idea of indulgences and the ideas of merit where I can purchase God's forgiveness. That's where the Reformation came from, guys. There was tremendous abuse within the Catholic Church. And Martin Luther looked at the church and said, this is wrong. There's nowhere in Scripture that I can buy God's forgiveness with an indulgence. There's nowhere in Scripture where I can add to what Christ has done for me on the cross. He's done it all. But we're still tempted with the idea that we can do more. And here's the greatest tragedy. There are a lot of folks who stay lost. That is, they stay separated from God because they stay in this idea, this theology, this philosophy that they can save themselves. If you look at this passage of Scripture, Jesus says, Work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to enter but fail. And what he's saying there is many will try to enter the kingdom of God on their own terms and they will fail to do so. There are a great many people who think they can be good enough people to enter the kingdom of God. I just need to be moral enough or do more good things than bad things. And when it's all weighed out on the judgment day, as long as I have more good things that I did than bad things, I'm going to make it. Into the kingdom of heaven. There are other people who think I'm going to receive Jesus and his salvation. But I'm going to work really hard to do what Jesus can't do for me. So that I can be saved. And there are some folks who believe even that and are lost. You see what Jesus is telling us here is that there is only one way to salvation. It is through a very narrow door. And that narrow door is Jesus himself. Jesus said I am the way. The way. The one way. 
the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me and me alone. Jesus was asked the question, will there be many or will there be few? He never answers the question. He just says there's one way and it's a narrow way. And you need to be diligent to make sure you understand the narrow way and that you enter through the narrow way. And that is me and me alone. So here is the thought I want you to take with you at this point here today. You may know Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord, but there are a lot of folks who have entered in and who are saved who are not enjoying the fullness of their salvation and the peace of their salvation and the rest of their salvation because they are still wrestling with this idea they were raised with that was birthed into our mind and heart in the womb, in our sin nature as it was placed there in us, and that is that we can add to what Christ has done for us. That somehow I have to continue to pursue and continue to achieve and continue to conquer and, and know and grasp God's acceptance when it's already given to us through Jesus Christ. One way to Christ, one way to stay in Christ, one way to be saved, one way to stay saved, one way that you'll be saved in the future, and it's all Jesus and what he's done for us, the narrow way. So Jesus starts there, and he says, you need to be sure, you need to work hard. This is all about relationship. He says, you need to work hard. He says, when the master of the house, that is God, has locked the door, it will be too late. You will stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he'll reply, I don't know you or where you come from. I don't know you. There are a lot of people that know about God. There are a lot of people that know about Jesus. And there are some people who believe they're saved because they know about God and they know about Jesus. There's some people that believe that they're saved from their sin just simply for the fact that they believe Jesus lived and died on a cross for the sins of the world. It is relationship with God that saves us. It's not a question of whether you know about God. It's whether or not God knows you. That is, if he knows you in a relationship. And there's only one way to relationship with God, and that is through a genuine faith where we renounce our sin, turn from our sin, die to our old man, and live in Christ. Going to him and saying, Lord, I want a new life. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I turn from my sin, and I turn to you, and you're my Lord now. I give you my life. I'm yours. I belong to you. Heard a preacher this week, I was listening to a little sermon clip. He said something to the effect, I'm going to paraphrase. He says, you'll have to forgive me. You'll have to forgive me for what I believe. I don't get to decide what I believe. I have a Lord. And he decides what I believe for me. And that Lord is Jesus Christ. So forgive me that I don't believe in marriage between two men. I don't get to decide that. My Lord decides that for, for me. Forgive me if I don't believe in abortion. I don't get to make that decision. I don't even get to consider whether that's right and wrong because that decision's already been made for me by my Lord. You see, we're Christians. We don't get to decide it anymore. We've died to self. We live in Him. He is our God. He is our Lord. And He decides for us what is right and wrong. We have a relationship with Him. We've literally given our life over to Him. We have died to self-sufficiency, we have died to our independence, and we are completely dependent upon Him and His sufficiency for us. We are in relationship with Him. We are. He's our Lord. 
See, there's a great difference between knowing about God and being in a relationship with God. And God is telling us here, only those who are in relationship with me are those who know me who will receive the open door on judgment day. Who will enter the kingdom. I'm always amazed by Christians who think they can decide for themselves what is right and wrong. We just don't get that opportunity anymore after we're saved. Before you're saved, yeah, you know, that's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They decided we're going to determine what's right and wrong. I want to grab that from that tree of knowledge of good and evil so I can be like God. What was the temptation there? That they could be self-determining, that they could decide for themselves, that they could be their own God, that they could determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, their own direction and their own way. Independent of God. See, there are some Christians who believe they can do the same thing. And if you're one of those people who are sitting here today thinking that you have the opportunity to decide for yourself these great moral questions of the day, you need to look hard within to make sure that you have really genuinely done what verse 5 says and repented of your sin and your independence from God and truly come into a relationship with Him and are living in and with Him. It's not about you. It's about him and it's about him in you. It's about relationship. Jesus says, work hard. Make sure that you know. Make sure that you have genuinely entered into a relationship with God. It's not about how many are going to make it and how few are going to make it. Be concerned about you right now and make sure that you know the truth and make sure that you have repented. Make sure that you have died to self, died to sin and given your life to him. Because there's going to be consequences if you don't. You know, some folks don't like talking about hell. Some folks don't like to preach about hell. And it's not really my favorite subject in the world to preach the subject of hell. But Jesus says here, there's going to come a day when folks are going to stand outside with weeping and gnashing of teeth because of what they have missed. I'm reading again from the New Living Translation here. He says, when the master of the house has locked the door, it will be too late You'll stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, but we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. They knew about him, but they didn't know him. And he will, he will reply, I tell you, I don't know you or where you come from. Get away from me, all you who do evil. There will be gnashing, weeping and gnashing of teeth, for you will see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you will be thrown out and the people will come from all over the world, from east, west, north and south to take their places in the kingdom of God. And note this, some who seem least important will be the greatest then and some who are greatest now will be least important to them. There's going to come a moment where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth when the door is shut up. Now, I want to give you a great philosophical question here today. Would God or can God be good and be holy and be righteous if he is indifferent towards sin. If God is morally neutral and just turns a blind eye to all those who do wrong, could he be called good? Absolutely not. Could he be called perfect? Absolutely not. God is good. God is perfect. God is loving. And as a result of that, there will come a day when he punishes sin. When he turns people over to the consequences of their choices. When he gives them what they have chosen for themselves. You choose rebellion against God. You choose not to come in the narrow way. You choose to reject Jesus Christ. 
Well, then you're going to receive that which you've chosen for yourself. The consequences of your sin when the door is shut. Right now we live in a time of grace. And what Jesus is indicating here is that there's going to come a moment in time when that time of grace is no more. And it will come in one of two ways. Either you'll stop drawing breath here on this earth or God is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back and rapture his church out and bring the consummation of the age. But there's going to come a moment, one of those two ways, when the doors are going to be shut to those who have rejected Christ. And it says here that in hell there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which are signs of grief and rage. There'll come a time when there will be great grief and rage. And these folks are going to see what they've missed. They're going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're going to see those folks who are in relationship with God and who are enjoying the blessing. They're going to see what they're going to, and they're going to see what they are going to. They themselves. And there's going to be great grief. And there's going to be great weeping. There's going to be a great gnashing of teeth in that place. A great suffering for what has been lost. You know, hell is a real place, just like heaven is a real place. There are blessings and rewards for our faith and our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And there's a great suffering and there's a great consequence for those who reject him. William Booth once said that some would send their prospective ministers to years of seminary and training. He said, I would send mine to five minutes in hell and bring them back. Now, I think if that were possible, we'd all be better pastors. And I think we'd all be better, maybe Christians. And maybe we would all share our faith a little more fervently. See, just as we so often think that we can take Christ, but still yet there's something more expected from us that Christ has yet to do, so often Christians just look at the reward of heaven and in the way we act, in the way we live our lives, we're like the universalists who say the way must be broad and everyone must be making it in, must, must make it in the end anyway because God is love. But God is an imperfect, unholy, unrighteous God if he ignores sin and does not bring some type of consequence thereof. God is loving. God is just. God is perfect and holy. And because of that, there's going to come a day when the door is closed and there'll be consequences. And some of those consequences are laid out for us here. I read a story recently about a fellow named Robert Ingersoll. He was an agnostic lecturer of the last century. And it was announced that he was to give an address on hell. And he declared that he would prove conclusively that hell was a wild dream of some scheming theologians who invented it to terrify credulous people. And as he was launching into his subject, a half-drunken man stood up, waved his hand, and exclaimed to the audience, Make it strong, Bob! There's a lot of us poor fellows depending on you. If you're wrong, we're lost, so be sure you prove it clear and plain. Hell doesn't exist. There's a lot of folks trying to prove it to themselves, and there are a lot of folks even that are trying to prove it to other people for themselves that hell doesn't exist because no one wants consequences for their sin. 
Man wants to be his own God, wants to save himself, wants to go to God by whatever way he chooses, doesn't want any consequences or any accountability for how he lives, what he does, or the choices he makes. But God says it's a narrow way. It only comes through Jesus that you have a relationship with me. And if you choose to go some other way, and if you choose to live in your sin, then you're going to die in the consequences of your sin, and you're going to go to hell where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell exists, but heaven does too. The story doesn't end here with hell, does it? It says that there is going to be a heaven. See, people will come from all over the world, east, west, north, and south, to take their places in the kingdom of God. There's a real eternity waiting for those who have faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation. You know, heaven is just a really, it's just a neat place, right? I mean, we, we know that from Scripture. It's going to be an incredible place. And so folks have it wrong in their mind. They have it that it's just going to be a bunch of folks sitting on clouds playing harps, and it's not going to be that way, all right? It's going to be much different. Uh, so don't, don't be drawn into that kind of, uh, of misleading, uh, idea, that misleading, misleading idea that it's all going to be clouds and harps and nonsense like that. It's going to be some serious things going on in heaven. In fact, we're going to have jobs to do in heaven. I, I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but Adam and Eve had a job to do before the fall. You know what that job was? It was landscaping, Lon. They were landscapers. See, Lon didn't know how close to God he was. But that was the original job that God gave to man. They were to tend the garden. But here's the kicker. There were going to be no thorns and there were going to be no weeds in that garden. It, the garden, the creation was cooperating with Adam and Eve so that the garden would be a beautiful, wonderful place. They were just going to tend it. I don't really know what all that means, but I know it was pretty good pretty good job and it was going to be great and they were glorifying God and serving God and participating with God in his glory and his perfection in his creation and it was a wonderful thing and then sin came in and the fall came and our jobs became something else altogether didn't it a job became just that a job became work became hard ground no longer cooperated with us we had to till the ground we had to tend the ground we had to weed it we had to to tend after it and and it became a, a battle between the ground and us. No longer was the creation cooperating with us as we together cooperated with God in a perfect world. But when we go to heaven, there's going to be an opportunity to work. There's going to be an opportunity to do again what we had the privilege of doing in the beginning. And that is that we're going to cooperate with God in his creative order. And it's going to cooperate with us. And we're going to glorify God together, the creation and us. It's going to be wonderful. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. But it sounds like fun to me, doesn't it to you? I think it's going to be pretty great. And more important than that, we're going to see God. We're going to have eyes to see God. We're going to see him face to face. We're going to enjoy his presence. We're going to do what Adam did before the fall, do what Eve did before the fall. We're going to walk with him in the cool of the day. But even beyond what they had, we, we're going to be able to see him with our eyes in a way maybe nobody ever has before. It's going to just be this wonderful, wonderful place, wonderful thing. To have that kind of relationship with God. That kind of intimacy with Him. To be in His throne room, to worship Him. Folks that have gone now, they're seeing Him now. We'll go someday, we'll see Him. And it's going to be a face-to-face -face experience. And the Bible says very clearly here that we're going to know those who have gone before us. We're going to know those who have died in Christ. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham was, was righteous because of his faith in the coming Messiah. So were Isaac and Jacob. 
whole lot of Old Testament saints are there today because of their faith in God's coming salvation. A whole lot of us since the cross are there now because of our faith in the salvation brought through us through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see those folks again. Isn't that exciting? That's going to be fun too, isn't it? To see those who knew Christ who are now there with him. I I can't imagine what that's going to be like. I mean, it's going to be a fun, fun family reunion with our family and friends. Isn't that great? Isn't that exciting? I think the older you get, the more exciting that may come. That may be, right? For a variety of reasons. You say, well, I'm going to have a perfect body there, and that sounds like a lot of fun the older you get, right? But you also know more people on that side than you do this side sometimes as you get older. And you say, man, I can't wait to get there and see all those folks again. That's going to be a good thing, right? And, and, and the older you get, the further you're removed from some people who you know are there. And it's like, well, it's going to be exciting to see those folks again. I mean, be excited to see Granny again, won't it? Be excited to see, see Hortense again. Be excited to see your grandmother again. It's going to be exciting to see those folks who knew Christ, who've been there a long time, that we haven't seen for years. And it's going to be exciting to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob even again. But this last verse here is a kicker about heaven that I just can't get away from. That's pretty exciting when we look at this whole story of what Jesus is saying in this passage. And what he really is saying here is that some folks that seem to be insignificant here, some folks who seem to be last here, they're going to be first there. And some folks who seem to be very significant here are going to be last there. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, you know what I think it means? I believe it means. Is that there are some little old ladies who are prayer warriors who no one has ever heard of who are going to have great responsibilities in heaven and going to have great jobs in heaven and are going to be pretty important people in the kingdom of God. And there are going to be some men who have done and lived a life who no one knew about of faithfulness to God. I think there are going to be some guys who mowed the grass at the church and who changed the light bulbs and who uh, vacuumed the floors and who did things that folks may have seemed insignificant here on this side of heaven who are going to have great places of significance there because of their faithfulness and their relationship with God. Because God was so important to their life and they loved Him so much and they lived a life of such faithfulness here and such humility here, and such complete dependence upon God here that they're going to be rewarded there with a great responsibility and great wonderful things to do. And there'll be those who seem really important here, who had great jobs here, who may not be seen as so important. And you know what? It's not really going to matter to them, right, in heaven. I I mean, we're in heaven. We see God. We're going to have heaven. It may not matter to you like you think it does here, but... There are going to be some folks given responsibilities there that may not be seemingly as great a responsibility as important. Or it may seem more important, but it doesn't seem like it's in proportion to their importance here on earth. See, anything we do in heaven is going to be more important than anything we do here, right? But the proportion of importance, you with me, of what we do there, for some people it may seem like, well, it seemed like I was proportionally a little more important on earth or had a little more to do. And what this verse is saying to us is God doesn't judge by the same measure we do as far as someone's worth and value to his kingdom. What an exciting place heaven is going to be. So this morning as we bring it to a close, I I, I know we've covered a lot of ground in this passage of Scripture. 
three or four good subjects that you can make a sermon on. I just felt like you'd rather me do that than preach six sermons on this one passage, right? So, so I went ahead and brought it all together for us today because it's still a complete thought. But what Jesus is saying here, this fellow came to him and says, are there going to be a lot of people in heaven? There are going to be few people in heaven. Jesus doesn't answer his question. He says, you be concerned about you. He says, and you work hard and diligent to make sure that you know the truth, that you believe the truth, and that you have entrusted yourself to the truth. And what is the truth? Jesus says, I'm the truth, and I'm the way, I'm the life. He's saying, you need to believe in me as your Messiah, that I have come to die for your sins, that I have rose again when I rise again, and that you have entrusted yourself to me and given your life to me to follow me. That's what's important. Not how many people are going to be there with you, but that you yourself are there. Because there's a real hell for those who reject me and a real heaven and a real reward for those who accept me. And you need to be sure that you're on the right side of things when that day of judgment comes and that moment of grace has passed and the door is closed and all on the outside will be weeping and gnashing their teeth, knocking and beating on the door, trying to get in. So where are you? Where are you? Do you know Jesus? Have you genuinely turned from your sin? Do you really believe that he's done everything to save your soul and there's nothing you can do to save yourself? Do you really genuinely believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, shed his blood for you to give you eternal life with him so you might have a genuine relationship with God? If you're not sure about that, in just a moment we're going to have a time of invitation where you can come And be sure of that. Where you can come and be certain that you know Jesus Christ. That you know God in relationship. And that you have a future that is secure in Him. And know that you're going to heaven someday. And if you're a believer here this morning, I just want to ask you, do these things speak to your heart today? Are you burdened for your friends who may not know Jesus? Are you excited about your future? You know, I think Christians need to think regularly about two things, among many other things, but two things in particular I'll challenge you with this morning, the reality of hell and the promise of heaven. That hell is a real place. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth and separation eternally from God, and heaven is a real place of wonderful reward beyond all of our comprehension beyond all of our wildest imaginations. We need to take a few moments regularly to consider there's a real hell and there's a real heaven. And there are folks in our life who do not know Jesus. And as we sang this morning, when you see your neighbor, when you walk out here, when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, when you go home today, will you let your light shine, the light of Christ that is within you? Or will you hide it? Will you put it under a bushel as we used to tell the kids not to do? Will you shine for Jesus? Will you believe in hell enough and believe in heaven enough and believe in Christ enough and believe in a relationship with God enough that you would share him with someone who may not know him? Would you do it? Would you do it? Let's bow together.